You are listening to the sermon podcast from Christ Community Church, Ardmore, Oklahoma. You can find more sermons and resources at ardmorecc.com. Now here's Pastor Artie Favre with today's message. Okay, turn to Colossians chapter 2. We're going to round up chapter 2. We're going to make our entry into chapter 3. We'll be looking at uh, chapter 2, verse 20 through chapter 3, verse 4 this morning as we continue our deep dive down into the book of Colossians, which I'm hoping that you see has such amazing depth to it. I've so much enjoyed every week getting to pour over and meditate on this book of scripture and, 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 to, and to kind of uh, uh, be in awe of what is being presented here. So to summarize, as we move forward and transition from two weeks ago to this one, uh, to, to this week, uh, here's how we ended, and this is where we're going to start today, where we ended last uh, two weeks ago. And it's with this paradigm uh, shift that I am asking you to consider or toy around with, at least, uh, as we think through our reading of the Scripture. Because as we said before, and we'll probably mention again a little bit later as a reminder, when we read the Scripture, it's so important for us to remember that um, uh, the Scriptures were written over a thousand years before the evangelical movement. So the scriptures were not written for the, in order to promote an evangelical movement. In fact, the scriptures are written before we have any creeds or any streams of Christianity. And so we have to remember when we come to the scripture, you're, you're reading authors who are influenced by a pre-modern context and they are writing scriptures before Christianity becomes an organized religion recognized by the state or the empire. So their context is radically different. And so the work of the Bible is, is really a work of being able to be self-aware enough of all the in ideological influences that are that have come to us throughout the years and strip those away and move those aside so as best we can we can read the bible from the vantage point of what a pre-modern person would have understood that's the only way of accessing uh, or even coming close to accessing what they might have been talking about. And so, so with that in mind, one of the things we've tried to emphasize, and it's important in understanding Colossians and really all the writing of Paul, is the conversation between the two covenants, the old covenant and the new covenant. And as we said, the word testament is a word synonymous for covenant. So even your Bible is literally divided between old covenant scriptures and new covenant scriptures. That, that's what the word testament means. Uh, in fact, I actually think it would have been better if we would have retained the word covenant because it would have helped us understand a little bit uh, what's going on in the narrative of the Bible. And so we begin to understand this idea that's in the New Testament that with the coming of Jesus, there's a new inclusive covenant in which God's spirits poured out on all of mankind. And it is different and distinct from the old covenant. It doesn't, it doesn't diminish the old covenant, but it does replace it and fulfill it and therefore make it obsolete. So what is so important about this transition? Well, the old covenant represents, like many other religions in the desert, it represents a God above you understanding of God. I am not saying that that is wrong because I believe God is omnipresent. So at the same time of believing God is in me, he is on my right and my left and above and below and in front of me and behind me and he exists on, his presence touches Pluto and the moon and all of the universe. And so, so I, I, I affirm that, but that understanding of God is incomplete. And that is what Jesus came to reveal. So the old covenant represents a God above you understanding of God. The new covenant reveals a God in you reality of God. 
Old covenant, a God above you, understanding of God. The new covenant reveals the, re, re, reveals the revelation of the God in you, reality of God. And of course, Colossians is one of those places where this is celebrated. And so what I would like for you to consider prayerfully is the idea that the greatest threat to the liberty of the gospel is the deception of blending the old and the new covenant approach together rather than letting the old one rest in its place of fulfillment and move into that obsolete reality in order to make room for the presence of the new covenant. Therefore, Paul is adamant in his letters that the new covenant made the old covenant obsolete. Jesus doesn't improve the old covenant. He fulfills and replaces the old covenant. And we're concentrating on the old covenant, but as you get into some of the letters of the New Testament, and, and it, as it becomes clear that some of the authors are not just writing to Jews, and they're not just writing to people who were part of uh, old covenant Judaism, as it goes along and as the message branches out into the Gentiles, Paul's also talking about not just the religious uh, uh, a system of Judaism, but he's also talking about the pagan religions out of which the Gentiles would have come. And so, so he's talking about both of those approaches whenever he is writing. So Jesus doesn't just improve the old covenant, he fulfills and replaces the old covenant, he also replaces other pagan expressions of religion because those religions have an outward code that is intended to bring an inward transformation, but the new covenant is an inward transformation that results in a lifetime of alteration in the fruit of our lives. And so, so now we pick it up here in verse 20. And, and Paul's been making, he's making a case here as to why we shouldn't submit to that old system of rules and regulations that essentially will say, say it like this. Paul, what Paul is talking about and talking against are the rules, rituals, and, and customs that come from mediated religion mediated religion where there's God who is mediated through a leader or through a priesthood or whatever your or preachers or deacons whatever your tradition is there's God there's this there are the mediators the kind of the professional Christians the one that have to read the footnotes in their Bibles and then there's everyone else whose relationship with God is mediated by this class of people and and they they are free to live some sort of lesser commitment to Christ or something because they're 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 the they're the third tier or whatever it's foolishness I'm not promoting this but that's what religion tends to do so what Paul uh, Paul is going to make a case and his case is this the reason why we are not bound by external forms of religious authority is because God has made a transformation that is mysterious and is mystical and is inward and, and, and even to the point that we really kind of struggle with language about it. I mean, these verses are great ones to just sit around the table and say, what do you think this might mean? Because Paul uses spatial language for spiritual realities. And so it's okay that it's a little hard at first to kind of wrap our hands about around what might be being said. But he says here in verse 20, if you died with Christ. Now, the, the, I, I don't even think that I think that what he's made clear so far is that we have died with Christ. And so I don't know that he's necessarily speaking something conditional. I think he's explaining, if this, then that. That's what he's doing here. So if you died with Christ, to the elements of this world, why do you live as if you still belonged to the world? Why do you submit to regulations? Don't handle, don't taste. Don't touch. 
Now, if you're like me and you were raised as an evangelical, they said the highest level of commitment to Christ was following culturally, in, culturally uh, informed um, expressions of evangelical morality. And that's what it means faithful because I thought being faithful to Christ is knowing what you don't handle and what you don't taste and what you don't touch. I mean, entire youth ministries that I attended were built around what you don't handle and what you don't touch, right? It wasn't about the beauty of Christ compelling us even though we're only 12 and 13 years old. It was about learning the things that we're supposed to not do. And this, what Paul says is, but as a believer, you've died to those regulations. You, you don't have to submit to those regulations. And, and before we get too far, it's important that we highlight this idea of the elements of this world. Because again, remember, the scriptures are written by pre-modern people to a pre-modern audience. When that idea of elemental principles of the world, when evangelicals hear it, it means, well, don't listen to Taylor Swift anymore because she has explicit warnings on her albums and don't break dance anymore because there's too much sensuality, whatever. All of these things, like the world is like that music and that entertainment. Stay away from all that stuff because you know garbage in, garbage out, et cetera, et cetera. I'm sure you've all heard these talks. Um, uh, but uh, that is not what Paul would have meant because again, when he's talking about the former way of life, he is talking about his audience's former religious way of life being that in Judaism, in Judaism worshiping Yahweh, or be that in paganism worshiping some of the pantheon of deities that were an option during that time in Rome. So when he's talking about the elemental principles of the world, he's not talking about sliding back and listening to little ACDC and, and dipping skull again when Noah's looking. That's not what he's talking about. He is talking about coming back into bondage of religion that exercises an external authority and dictates behavior, but doesn't transform the heart. That's what Paul's talking about. So the world simply means cosmos, which can be interpreted as the universe, but that's not the only way this word would have been utilized. It, it simply means an apt and harmonious arrangement or constitution, an order or government. And I think that to me, if you look at the context, what Paul is bringing out is the order of government that is created by mediated religion. It becomes an order that you have to follow. It becomes the authority figure. We say we're following God, but the truth is, at some point we start out following Jesus, and then we start following Christianity. And then we start following Christianity, and then we start uh, um, uh, following a contextualized version of Christianity um, identified by some particular denomination. But you see, we're moving further away from Christ as we give ourselves over to systems of ideology. So when he's talking about these elemental principles, he's talking about this organization of mediated religion. Or he, this is one aspect that I would like to bring out in my reading of the text. What he says is, the reason why isn't because it, it was useless, it isn't because it was necessarily false, but he says the reason why you don't submit to the elements of this world and the regulations is because you were included in the death in Christ. And here's what he literally says at the first phrase in verse 20, you have died with Christ to the order of former religious systems that governed you before the mystery was revealed. And, and that idea of being governed until it was revealed, if you want to dive into this a little more, flip over, not right now, of course, 
uh, or you'll miss something wonderful, I'm sure. But uh, sometime, make a footnote, go over to Galatians chapter 4 where Paul uses the illustration where he calls the former religious system as a tutor in, in, that, that, was, that, that was intended to watch over the children until they came to maturity. And when they came to maturity, it was no longer a tutor that was needed. It was a tutor that led them to Christ. Uh, and so he, he articulates that a little bit more um, in depth in Galatians 4. But he's talking about dying to the former religious systems that governed you before the mystery was revealed. And my friends, what is the mystery? Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now that that mystery has been revealed, those patterns that guided us are no, now they're obsolete. They've been revealed because you don't have to follow external demands when the spirit is leading you from your heart. And then when you learn to cultivate an inward, a rich inward life of listening for the Spirit and responding to the Spirit, and the way Paul says it in Galatians 5, a lifestyle of learning to keep in step with the Spirit. And so, so, so he says, you don't submit because, because you have died to those things. So if you have died to the former order of religious systems, why are you still submitting to the rules of religion? And then he gives examples. Don't touch, don't eat, don't taste. But as modern evangelicals, we might add the rules, don't include them, don't associate with them, because we have our rules too. And we typically aren't preoccupied with where our meat came from. That was a big deal for them because they wanted to know, was this meat offered to an, an, an idol or a false god before it came to my plate? That was the situation they were in. We don't worry about that, but what we do worry about is whether or not we'll communicate the wrong thing by loving people that do things we disagree with. How silly of us, right? You can say amen to that if you're a little Pentecostal. Um, and, but, but so we submit to that same kind of system as well, not recognizing the transformation that is taking place and is offered to the totality of humanity because Christ took away the sins of the world. So if you've died to the former order of religious systems, why are you still submitting to the rules of religion? And then verse 22, he says this about these regulations. All these regulations refer to what is destined to perish by being used up. They are, a, they are human commands and doctrines. Although these have a reputation for wisdom by promoting self-made religion, false humility, and severe treatment of the body... They are not of any value in curbing self-indulgence. Whoa. Somewhat offensive of you, Paul. He's saying that these rules can only attempt to control the body, but they are only controlling that which is temporary and fading away. At best, these self-made religions may project a disciplined self-righteousness, but they cannot curb unrighteousness. 
Now, by way of illustration, and I want to keep this generic, and we'll get a little bit more personal in just a few moments, but think about this for a moment. And again, I'm not addressing Christendom as a whole. I don't have an experience with Christendom as a whole. I have experience with the Bible Belt evangelicalism in Southern Oklahoma in postmodern times. That's what I have experience with. And so think about this for just a moment. Um, and again, I don't want us to slip. I'm not making any kind of political or theological statement. I just want us to think discerningly about some of the realities around us. And I am particularly struck by the number of highly theologically correct and conservative men who have given themselves over to a lifetime of mastering the regulations of their religion and sexually abusing children, sexually abusing women, now being exposed, being asked to step down. I mean, I don't know. I, I understand that I'm probably have my foot in that world way more than you all do, but I am interested in following these trends, and it's astounding to me how much very strict, um, ethically conservative theology doesn't produce saints. It, it doesn't produce humble men who are laying down their lives to shepherd the flock. It's producing entitled men who abuse and use the flock. Now, at some point, I don't know what the number is, needs to be, but at some point, we all need to get together in our living rooms, make a pot of coffee, have an oatmeal cookie, and say, is it time for us to consider that they are this way not in spite of their theology, but is it possible that we are perpetuating this culture because of the theology. And I'm not saying, I'm not saying which way I lean. <laughs> I, I am just saying that isn't it time for us maybe to have that conversation? Isn't it time for us to maybe consider that as an option? Because how often have you attempted to correct an internal struggle with external rules and discipline. Yes, thank you for that. In fact, let's just, let's just have some fun with it. Show of hands. You've really tried to correct an internal struggle by giving yourself to these external rules and regulations and discipline. Of course, I have. I've been on that, car it's, a, it's a carousel. It just goes round and round and round and round. And I don't know why, I just kept perpetuating it for 48 years, expecting it to result in something different. But thank God, I think maybe the Holy Spirit has yanked me by the collar. See, at best, this strategy will only temporarily constrain undesirable behavior. And you probably experienced that, right? Like it works at first. And then you say, oh, I've been free from X, Y, Z because, and this is the way that I did it. And the pastor says, oh, you know, more people need to hear that. I'm going to put you up on stage next Sunday so you can tell everybody how you don't struggle anymore because you submitted to these rules and regulations. And when you made the testimony, you were probably being true because it's really successful for about three weeks. But then slowly, things, and now you are even a worse, more guilt-ridden hypocrite 
because you've gone around telling everybody how you've conquered this thing through this way and you've got to keep promoting that or you're going to look stupid but then it kills your soul because deep down you know that's no longer the truth of your experience that's called doing church that's what we all do we are all participating in a fiction that we know is fiction but nobody can highlight that because then it ruins it for everybody and if you try we'll figure up a reason to kick you out so this doesn't work and why is it that it doesn't work it is because my friends undesirable behavior is always a symptom now you might disagree with that and i understand that that is that, that that's being discerning but if you could for just a moment entertain that this is possibly true that all undesirable behavior is a symptom of an inner brokenness or an inner blindness to the truth of the living, indwelling Christ. Well, if that's the case, that's why external rules will never fix that. It's at best helping you managing symptoms that embarrass you around your religious group. That's the best that it's doing, but it's not bringing transformation because it's only the Holy Spirit that can do that, but his means is different than ours. The blindness and the brokenness is what the Holy Spirit can heal, and he does heal. It's just that he does it in his own time, and he does it by creating an inward whisper. Oftentimes, the reason why people can't hear the inward whisper is because Christ's church is so loud, yelling and condemning and defending God. Shh. Trust the Spirit to do what He's promised to do, and then learn how to cooperate with Him from the prophetic empathy of the spirit rather from what I've figured out from my own tree of knowledge of good and evil. So then he says this in verse three. So if you have been raised with Christ, so the first one is if you've died with Christ, then don't submit. The reverse is also true. If you've been raised with Christ, then seek the things above. Do you see? Seeking the things above is contrasted with submitting to the rules and regulations. Then don't do this because you've died to that. You have been raised to Christ, so there is something for you to do, but what you do is you seek the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Now, look at Paul's definition, the way he goes about talking about um, uh, what we're called to seek after. So much of discipleship is predicated on convincing you of what you are not and what you lack. But if you come to this group or you'd read this book or go to this study or go listen to an evangelical guru or get in the right prayer line of the right anointed prophet, that's my background, I don't, yours is I'm sure different, if, if, you, if you do these things, then something can happen that will move you closer to the place where you ought to be. 
But look at what Paul's counsel is. You've already been raised with Christ. That's why you seek the things above. We are called to seek that which we already possess. And that is a critical difference in our approach to discipleship. We are called to seek that which we already possess. The problem with modern discipleship is that it infuses unbelief at the very beginning. It says, let's bypass the fact that you've already been raised with Christ. Let's assume that you're incomplete. Let's assume non-incompleteness in Christ. And therefore, this is why you need this discipleship product. Do you see how deceptive that is? Because in reality, discipleship should be an ongoing encouragement and revelation of who you already are, but you can't yet see. And what you already possess, but for some reason you might be blind to. That's what disciple is. It's revealing who you are, not trying to change you to become something else. And if you start from that place, then you immediately start with the assumption of unbelief in Christ's finished work. How can you ever be discipled into believing it when you start there? You, you already have that which you're seeking. So therefore, you've already been raised. Therefore, continue, therefore, seek the things that are above. Your resurrection has already taken place for you were raised with Christ. Seek Christ where he dwells. Now, we know that this is not strictly a spatial reality. And the reason why I say that is because when we read words like heaven and earth or above and below, we immediately think spatial. And so then you've got folks who's like, don't think about anything on the earth, just think about what's up in the sky. Well, try to live that day that way for just one week and just come tell me how it goes for you. We gotta move beyond this strict thinking of these metaphors of spatial realities because Christ isn't just above. In fact, it's not a spatial reality that he's talking about. In chapter one, Paul actually celebrated the omnipresence of the living Christ because all things are being held together in him. In other words, I do understand and appreciate the instruction to, th to seek things above where Christ, where Christ dwells as long as you understand that you already dwell there too. You're already there. And so, and so whenever he, he says this, it's beyond a spatial reality. In other words, it's not like Christ is there, but not here. That's not what he's saying whenever he communicates that. Christ is present wherever God is present. But remember, this letter reveals the mystery of precisely where Christ can be found. And where is that? in you. That's what the text has been celebrating all along. Christ can be found in you. Verse 2, so set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Look at these, look at these words, your life is hidden in Christ with God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, look at this, this is so good. When Christ appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. When Christ appears, you appear. Why? Because your life is hidden with Christ in God. My friends, there is a life that is more real than the life that often preoccupies our attention. 
And Paul says, seek Christ there. Your truest life is hidden with Christ. Therefore, your truest life is hidden in God. Now, this is important because what Paul is going to tell us, if we're going to grow in our discipleship, then we start with the assumption of being one with God. Now, I'm, I don't want to be repetitive, but it's important that we grasp the difference between starting with that assumption, but most of us pursue discipleship so we can get to God. Do you see what a mistake this is? And do you see why the Holy Spirit cannot allow that to work for you long-term? Because if the Holy Spirit allowed that to work for you long-term, that's what you would trust, and thus you would believe you traveled from away from God to God. When the miracle of the New Testament is no, he is already with you. You, you don't have to get to him. You have to learn how to stop, slow down, and trust that he's here and begin to listening to him. What if we stopped looking for answers and started instead listening for answers? I think that we would come closer to the internal new covenant reality that we have been privileged to uh, be given as our birthright. And so, and so we begin with the assumption that I am already in Christ because my life is hidden with Christ and therefore my truest life is hidden in God. Now, this has some remarkable practical implications. So let's meditate on those for just a few minutes here. This means in some mysterious mystical sense that I can't fully articulate and comprehend, this means that wherever Christ is, there you are too. And the corollary corollary is also true. Wherever you are, Christ is there too. So when you pray and ask God to be present here or there, or when you beseech him to do this or that, you are being invited into your ministry, your path of service. Christ is present in the circumstances of your life because you are present in the circumstances of your life. So part of the gift of prayer is that we are empowered to participate in being the answers to our prayers. Now, it's a different way of thinking about prayer than what often people are, because often people will say things like, the prayer is the work. It's not. It's the beginning of the work, absolutely. It It is a necessary part of the work because it causes me to be grounded from a place of humility rather than the arrogance of my sophisticated ideology of categorizing good and evil. I begin in a place of humility recognizing I can't do this, but you can. Now, I am not saying that we don't, obviously I can't heal someone of cancer, but if my wife or daughters or people that I love have cancer, I'm gonna ask God to go and move and heal them. So I'm not saying there's never a place where we understand we're asking God to do something supernaturally miraculous that we can't do. But what I'm saying is the majority of prayer, most of prayer, most of life is not like that way. Even if we are, even if we're people that have testimonies of miraculous intervention of our lives, you may have two, three of those stories. 
Now, the normal way is for the Spirit to empower us to be the body of Christ on earth. That is by far the most predominant ethic that we'll find in the New Testament. So when we are praying and asking God, we we need to be open to the possibility that we were motivated to pray that prayer because the Spirit wants to empower us to be part of the answer. Let, Let me show you what I mean by illustrating it from a story of Scripture. When we look at the book of Acts, we have that Acts chapter 2 moment where the in Pentecost where the spirits poured out. Two chapters later, uh, I think it's Peter and John, they are preaching and they get arrested and they get beaten, they get flogged and they get warned. And they say, no more preaching in Christ. Don't do this anymore. So they go back and talk to the church. Now, I can't help but believe if it was an evangelical church that they might not say, we need to lobby for a president that will pass laws so that Christians will no longer be persecuted. Like that tends to be the way we want to handle things. What's a policy that we can push for that will make sure that Christians are treated nice? That tends to be our first answer to everything. This is not what the church did. In fact, they never even prayed that the authorities' hearts would be altered. They almost assumed that they won't be which is the reason why they need to gather and pray. Look at what happens in Acts chapter 4. And now, Lord, consider their threats and grant that your servants may speak your word with all boldness. Not grant that we won't get in trouble for speaking your word. Not grant, Lord, put put more Christians in office so that less Christians are persecuted. That is not what they pray. They don't pray, hey, Lord, smite the government. They don't pray, Lord, change them and turn them into believing and thinking the way we think and believe so that we can have it an easier time. No, that's not what they pray. They say, this is the reality. We're talking against brokenness and blindness, so we need more boldness in doing our job. That's what they pray for. Not for God to... They're not praying for God to manipulate someone else. And this becomes dangerously close to magic. That's what that's about. About asking the elements and the spirits and to manipulate someone else. Now, am I saying it's wrong to ask God to change someone's heart? I know what we mean by that. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just asking, let's, let's think deeply here for just a few seconds. That's dangerously close to manipulation and magic. But instead of asking God to alter the will of someone else, they simply submit their will to God. Now, you have a right to do that. It's yours. You submit your will to God and say, Lord, move my heart. How are you calling me to respond to the circumstance that I'm facing? And here's what it says. Grant that they may speak your word with boldness while you stretch out your hand for healing. So see, there's a balance here. I'm not saying we never pray for God to do something miraculous that we can't do. It's just that we don't do it detached from our understanding that he's calling us to participate in his miracle. While you stretch out your hand for healing and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. When they had prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God 
boldly. And I love that little illustration because you see how prayer works. Of course, they're depending on God to do what he cannot do, but they're not leaving it there. They're saying, we need you to change us so that we can continue to bring this beautiful message of humanity's reconciliation to God in Christ. Even though we're being persecuted, we need boldness to continue to speak this life-liberating message. And so it's the same way. Whatever we are praying about, we've got to be open to God calling us to participate in responding to that circumstance. Why? Because Christ is present in that circumstance because you're present in that circumstance. All of this begins with the revelation that we are called to live according to the inner indwelling of Christ rather than the external demands of a religious system of man. So, in conclusion, if this speaks to you, then I would encourage you to begin asking yourself questions. Begin to ask questions of yourself and to begin to go on your own journey of renewal yourself. Do as Paul says and seek, 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 Ask God for the same transforming revelation that caused the soul of religion to become the Paul of revelation. The same revelation that caused the, 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 the soul of religion to become the Paul of revelation. Once again, I'm going to direct you to the scripture to illustrate this point. In Galatians chapter 1, verses 13 through 17, Paul's writing autobiographically about his own experience. And listen to very closely to what he says, what he's contrasting. He's not contrasting being delivered from a life of sin. I mean, that's the, isn't that, can you imagine these testimonial videos if I asked David to film them? Like, we want him to film the ones of the, you know, the guy that was part of Sons of the Anarchy, and he went to a a public restroom and when he unrolled the toilet paper a gospel tract fell out because somebody like young Artie was stuffing in the toilet paper uh, with this vision that I was going to be an evangelist of the Lord by leading to people to Christ while they were on the toilet and um, but let's just say that that happened and he pulls that out and he gives his heart to the Lord he comes across community church and man we love that man this guy used to run heroin he used to kill people and now he's been baptized and look and I love those stories and I'm not discounting that those happen and I'm grateful that they happen but they're not the norm and I remember this feverish atmosphere that would happen in evangelical churches that the worst sinner that became a Christian those are the tickets we wanted to buy to go listen to this story well, Paul's story isn't, hey, my former way of life was not good. I used to run heroin and a prostitution ring. And then I turned seven and I really started getting into hardcore criminality. And then when I was 12, I went to an FCA meeting. You know, I mean, that's not his thing. What he says is the former life of sin was one committed to religious zeal. That's what he says. That's what Jesus delivered him from. And so he says this here, for you have heard about my former way of life in Judaism. I intensely persecuted God's church and tried to destroy it. I advanced in Judaism. He advanced in his organized system beyond many contemporaries among my people because I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. My goodness, he would have made a good evangelical, wouldn't he? 
But when God, who from my mother's womb set me apart and called me by his grace, was pleased, look at this, verse 16, to reveal his son in me. He's not a very good evangelical because what he should have said was, when I repented of my sin and then the spirit was given to me, then I, God revealed his son in me. That is not what he says. When I was 100% going in the opposite direction, when there was no evidence at all from the fruit of my life that God set me apart for this work of proclamation of grace from my mother's womb, there's no evidence of that. I discovered that Christ was already there. To reveal his son in me so that I could preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone. I did not go to Jerusalem. I didn't consult the leaders of the movement is what he's saying. I didn't go to Jerusalem to those who had become apostles before me. Instead, I went to Arabia, and then I came back to Damascus. I went and hid myself in the desert, and I let the Spirit teach me. That's exactly what Paul's saying. That's what he did. He didn't run to get testimony endorsement from the authorities. He just went to the desert. He let the Holy Spirit teach him about what it means that Christ was revealed in him, in him. What do you think? Embark on a journey of renewal. Seek the living Christ who dwells in you. Like Paul, ask God to reveal his son in you rather than to you. You see how subtle this religion works because it sounds so spiritual. Oh Lord, reveal your son to me. But then that requires me to start from the place of unbelief that Christ isn't already revealed in me. So that's not what, I'm, that's not what he asks, it's not to me, but ask God to reveal Jesus in you. You are not ambassadors of a religion. You are carriers of a presence. That is your call. And when you show up, Christ shows up every time. The only question is, am I consciously keeping in step with the Spirit so I'm aware that Christ is showing up? So that I can be present to keep in step with the Spirit and do what God's calling me to do as part of His renewal of all things. Live from this revelation, my friends, rather than the rules of religion. Walk with God rather than striving to be like Him. Be nourished by the tree of life rather than the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So as the worship team comes up, as we get ready to close and to pray, I ask you to step out on this somewhat odd but simple response. Whether you sit and prayerfully meditate or you stand and worship along with uh, this closing worship song. Or of course, the communion elements are around. If you wanna go take those and kneel up front here or kneel at your chair and you want to pray and commune with the Lord. Or I'm gonna ask the worship team, I mean the prayer team to also come forward. They'll be here during this closing song. And if you just wanna respond by having someone pray for you, 
you're welcome to do that. But my, 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 my encouragement is this. Take a moment, create some space, and ask God to reveal the Son in you. Ask Him to show you what it means, because at the end of the day, some self-proclaimed teacher telling you about it isn't gonna transform you. It's when you know it from in here and you learn to listen and bear witness from right in here and release yourself from the shackles of the rules and regulation of religion. Because God might call you to minister outside of the boundary lines that your religion has created. Would you all stand with me? Heavenly Father, we ask in the next few moments that you would just allow this to become sacred space. Sacred not because it's a church building, but sacred because the saints who carry the presence of God are all gathered here, and therefore you are here in our midst. And reveal your Son in us, we pray.